0: emergency managers need to have that same level of respect and cultivate that same level of professionalism. And I think it's beginning to happen and hopefully it will continue to happen.
1: Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe. As emergency managers, we are faced with lots of natural and man-made disasters. These are you know, becoming stronger and more complexed as population grows and the climate changes. The skills of emergency management is they're getting better too, as we get more educated emergency managers coming out of the colleges and universities. However, you know, we've seen heavier rainstorms, larger hurricanes, more massive fires that are striking, you know, every year. Can we keep up with demand as emergency managers? Well, today I'm talking to Dr. Robert Schneider about emergency managers and sustainability. Now on to the interview. Dr. Schneider, welcome to EM Weekly.
0: Well, thank you. Happy to be with you.
1: So... Let's talk about your your, your book here uh, that you, that's, that's out here, emergency management and sustainability, and and how do you see that the the cross section specifically between EM and sustainability?
0: Okay, that would be the the book I wrote back in two thousand and thirteen. Yes, and uh, it was the product of uh, many years of work, actually, um, and, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of preview before I get into the your question. Uh, I became interested in in, in emergency management primarily when Dennis Belletti published that book, Disasters by Design. Mm -hmm. And this was the era in which disaster mitigation was a hot topic. This was the period of time when James Lee Wood had started Project Impact, which, if you recall, I think, uh, it made a huge difference. Uh, The projects that were funded by Project Impact got communities across the country involved, with serious mitigation planning. It not only involved local governments uh, partnering with the federal government, but it involved businesses and and, and citizens in, in a genuine national dialogue about disaster mitigation. Well, that lit my fire. Okay, That lit my fire, and that was my focus for a good long time. And by the time uh, I got around to writing this book that you've asked about, uh, it occurred to me that what was probably most important about the emergency management profession, if it is going to actually be a profession, was the connectivity between its work in hazard mitigation and the, and the creation of hazard resilient and sustainable com- communities. Uh, you know, uh, if you think back uh, to the beginning of the whole mitigation discussion, I think of Gilbert White, the great geographer, who is the, the father of modern floodplain management. And he said over 70 years ago, uh, floods are acts of God. Flood damages are largely the acts of men. True. And what that, And what that means, of course, is it's what we build, how we build it, where we build it, that is often the determining factor in terms of how many damages we will sustain in a natural hazard scenario. And and so that was kind of the the driving force behind uh, not only my work over the years but that book in particular to make that a focal focal point for emergency management as it began to define itself as a profession. The creation of sustainable communities, hazard resilient communities requires the input, the expertise of those who assess the risks those who understand the vulnerabilities and those who know the importance of of what we build where we build it and how we build it in relation to the threats and vulnerabilities so that was the motivation behind the book and that's really what I'm trying to drive at with that particular book is to is to highlight the important role that emergency management as a profession can play in decisions that are made at the community level decisions regarding development uh, decisions regarding uh, uh, intergenerational and intragenerational uh, equity you know we 're passing this on to our children
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and uh, and so that was that was the motivation and that was sort of the theme
1: so so moving kind of on for, from there, then you came into managing the the, the climate crisis um, where how do you see the emergency management professional profession? fitting into managing the climate crisis?
0: Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, we have to understand, uh, and I'm I'm not certain everybody in the field is in total agreement about this, but it is a relevant variable that needs to be considered in the work that emergency managers do. Climate change, if we understand the science uh, and uh, take a good look at it, is in fact changing the vulnerabilities and the risks that every community faces in relation to natural disasters. Uh, you know, we've seen we've seen in recent years what have been called unprecedented events, historic storms. Uh, and here in North Carolina, I've experienced two of them in the last twenty-three months. You know, we had uh, Hurricane Matthew in twenty sixteen and less than two years later, Hurricane Florence. Mm-hmm. And both of both of those storms uh, were considered historic uh, in terms of their impact, not only on coastal areas, but inland. In fact, even in my home, uh, I had to leave my house by boat during Michael. Wow. Uh, and we sustained damage during Florence because of flooding, flooding that we had never seen in the previous 25 years I lived there. But now all of a sudden, within that 23-month period, we have two events that are considered, what, 500-year type events?
1: Right, right. Uh,
0: and we see we've just had a, a really significant storm coming up from Florida just recently, uh, Michael, which caused devastating damage down there, and it really went up the entire East Coast, didn't it? Yeah. We're seeing more and more and more of these so-called unprecedented events. And my point is that maybe we need to stop using that word unprecedented. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. What we're looking at is a new normal, and that new normal is something that has been very predictable. In fact, in, in that book, Managing the Climate Crisis, I summarized a lot of the projections that were being made. And just in two years since that book was published, it's amazing how many of the things I wrote about there have actually come to pass. Uh, uh, what we're seeing is that climate change is directly impacting climate. Uh, what we're experiencing with natural disasters. It's not causing natural disasters necessarily. I mean, always be, there's always going to be the next storm, right? right. There's, a, there's always going to be a tropical event. Uh, there's always going to be a drought. But what is happening is the, the changes in the climate are intensifying these experiences. And, and uh, for example, with hurricanes, you've got more moisture in the air, so you're going to have more rain. You have changing uh, frontal systems. They're slowing down. Storms are are stalling. Uh, I was amazed, you know, during Florence to see that it was moving at one or two miles per hour. And with the amount of rain that was dropping, you know, that's asking for trouble. So the point is, uh, these risks and vulnerabilities are changing, and we need to factor that into our risk assessments. Uh, You cannot ignore climate change. Uh, It must be factored into our risk assessment as we prepare our communities for future disasters, but also as we think in terms of disaster mitigation uh we do need to do more uh, uh, serious thinking about what we can do to mitigate these more serious threats some of that may mean encouraging our uh, our communities and our citizens to get more invested in in some of the techniques of soft and hard mitigation but it may also mean that we have to think in the broader context in terms of um Policy, You know, public policy, the greatest mitigating policy would be to, of course, stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere, stop making the problem worse. Right. But, but, but that's, beyond the, that's beyond the focus of emergency management. But what emergency managers do need to do is to, to factor, factor climate risk into their d- definition of the risk at the community level. In fact, in some countries like Canada, that's taking place uh, as we speak. I think under Craig Fugit, FEMA, FEMA was starting to move in that direction. I, I think they've backed off from it now. In fact, I um, <clears throat> came across some information a few a couple weeks ago under Brock Long that uh, FEMA is no longer considering climate change in its in its preparation for uh, future disasters.
1: Um, I, I think what I was was I was reading on that though. It, it seemed to be that. It's not going to be a focus, but they're integrating it into all sections of, of the of the planning so uh,
0: well that that would be good, but on the other hand, I think it should be a focus uh, because it probably is the single variable that's going to accelerate the risks more than anything else
1: well that's a great segue actually into my next question um, so your your book that just came out in, in March of this year is when science and politics collide and as anything else, like any other government-driven agency with emergency management, we are driven by what the policies of our policymakers are, which are our elected officials for the most part. Um, and, and, and how do we bridge that gap? When we start talking, like North Carolina, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was North Carolina, that the legislators like, voted saying that there is no climate change or they're not going to use that science. Am I correct on that?
0: Yeah, that was, it had to do with the rising sea level. Uh, if you look at the predictions for sea level rise, it places many uh, coastal areas out in the outer banks in jeopardy. And it was going to impact uh, some of the development out there. It was going to elevate insurance rates, prevent people from building some of the luxury facilities they wanted to build, you know, the vacation spots. And, and so, uh, you know, they didn't like that. And uh, the legislature was persuaded by the developers and a few others to uh, not base uh, projection of sea level rise on climate change projections, but rather to use the historical model, uh, which will have lower, you know, which will project lower, uh, lower sea level rise. And those will be better projections for developers, but they're going to be flat out wrong projections. Sea level is going to rise a lot more than the historical pattern. And, uh, and, and it is going to place a lot of, out there in in jeopardy.
1: So we have an example here now, a direct example, when you have science-based information that is not up to what the political considerations are, so they're definitely colliding, which is Mm -hmm. now putting more pressure on the the emergency managers and the complete rescue system as a whole. How do we as emergency managers um, uh, balance that? between the politics and what we know to be good. You know,
0: that's a very good question and a very difficult one, as you know. Uh, and, you know, if, if you stop and think for just a minute, emergency managers have faced a variation of this problem, even on simple matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's the old joke that the uh, county commissioner asks the local emergency director of emergency management, explain to me what you do. And he says, well, my job is to, tell you things you don't want to hear, ask you to spend money you don't have to address problems you don't think will ever exist. Right. So, so, I mean, that's kind of been the dilemma all along to educate the policymaker, right? Whether it be the city council, the county commission, the state legislature, the Congress, Uh, the emergency manager has always been in that position of having to, to provide uh, that sort of input. And as the, Issues become more complicated. Of course, it's not just the emergency manager. The emergency manager does have um, the help of science when it comes to things like climate change, but communicating to the to the decision maker is always the most difficult thing. And one of the one of the things about the new book, uh, managing, I mean, uh, uh, when science and politics collide, which, by the way, is available. Uh, on Amazon, and it's on sale right now. You can get it <laughs> at a reduced price. You can get it at a reduced price commercial. But the, the, the main thing in that book, I, 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 that book kind of grew out of my uh, question when I was writing about uh, the climate risks and vulnerabilities in relation to uh, the future. Why do people and why do politicians for that matter not want to hear that? Why do they deny some, some of the things that the science is saying. And that caused me to, to want to investigate, well, historically, what has the relationship been between our government and science? And one of the things I found is that there are four basic dynamics that, that tend to influence that relationship. And usually there's one of the four that dominates in each case, although there may be two or even three of the dynamics working together. But uh, the dynamics and it probably seem like common sense. One dynamic is a cooperative dynamic. The politicians and the scientists cooperate to solve a problem that they, that they agree upon. Uh, a second dynamic is a conflict dynamic. Science comes up with findings that, um, that certain economic interests don't want to hear because it may affect their bottom line in a negative way. And so they lobby the politicians to resist that science. Uh, the third dynamic is the resistance dynamic. For reasons uh, having to do with political ideology or religion, people will resist what science is telling them. And the fourth dynamic is the one I call the panic dynamic. You might think of that in terms of a public health emergency, uh, a, a flu pandemic. Right. where. Right. But each of those dynamics, when I look at them, show me that it's it's almost a flawed relationship between politics and science. You know, in the cooperative dynamic, when they're cooperating, it's the politics that's driving the ship. Uh, think of the atomic bomb and think of the space race. Those were two major projects where science and government had to collaborate. And it was the, the government or the polit- political side of things that drove that. They had the goal, the objective and they knew they needed the science. They needed the science to accomplish the objective. When Sputnik was launched in 1957, it caused a massive reaction in this country. People were worried. The Soviet Union, in the Cold War, the Soviet Union is now ahead of us in the space race. Does this mean they can put nuclear weapons in space? And politicians Uh, felt that it was absolutely vital for our national security in the context of the Cold War that we stay ahead of the Soviet Union technologically and in terms of applications for the arms race. And so that's what really fueled the space race. The space race wasn't about science, about exploring space, going to the moon. It was about achieving the ultimate position in the arms race. As Lyndon Johnson, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, said, more important than having the ultimate weapon is having the ultimate position. So it was that kind of thinking uh, related to national defense that promoted the space race. President Kennedy, when he became president uh, in March of 1961, told the director of NASA he was canceling the Apollo moon project. One month later, the Soviet Union orbits the Earth. Yuri Gagarin, the first man to orbit the Earth. And President Kennedy is incensed. We've got to get back out in front of the Russians here. What are we going to do? Can we get to the moon before they do? And lo and behold, in May, just two months after saying he was canceling it, he gave a second state of the union in less than uh, three or four months. And in that state of the union said, we must send a man to the moon and return him safely to the earth before the decade is out. That wasn't because he was interested in the science. It was because he saw it as a national defense priority, and and so that was the nature of the collaboration. The the political concerns usually drive the collaboration. Far more frequently, we see it's a a matter of conflict. Right? You know, science reaches a finding that we don't want to accept. The cigarette companies weren't happy when science discovered that. Guess what? There's a there's a linkage between smoking and lung cancer. They weren't happy with that. They spent a lot of money trying to to defeat that that science. Um, Fossil fuel companies weren't happy when they heard about climate change and the need to uh, you know reduce carbon emissions and convert to renewable and cleaner sources of energy. And they have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars over the last three decades, at least, to to try to discredit the consensus of climate scientists. So in that context, uh, what we see is this kind of a tug of war, and, and science and politics are colliding. And for the emergency manager or anybody else who's trying to communicate to the politician, it becomes almost impossible to cut through that conflict. Uh, you know, we might take some solace in the belief that science is always proven correct, right? I mean, if the science is done well, and if continued study r- demonstrates that the science has been done well, it will win. I mean, right. we know that the, the Earth orbits the sun, right? right. Galileo, Galileo discovered that. And a lot of people denied it for a long time, including the Catholic Church, that they, they, they were rather negative toward that discovery. Uh, look at, but science won. We all know that the Earth goes around the Sun today, and even the Catholic Church apologized to Galileo, but that apology came 350 years after he was dead.
1: Right. And so, wasn't, so, so, he, wasn't he put under house arrest? For, for oh yes. Police?
0: Oh yes. 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 <clears throat> he was. He was. And keep in mind, that's the ultimate question. The science will ultimately win. The question is, will it win in a timely manner so that it makes a difference? I mean, if 350 years from now, people say, well, we were wrong about climate change, that's going to be too late. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean we, need, we need to. So I guess I'm not answering your question because it's a difficult one to answer. What can emergency managers do? I think the one thing they can do simply in doing their jobs is to factor in the science to their calculus of risk and vulnerability. You don't even have to mention the words climate change because some people get upset when you do. Mm -hmm. But you do assess risk and vulnerability, right? Right. And, And you can factor these trends into that assessment and then do your very best to do what we always do, which is try to convey that to the decision maker in a manner that will encourage them to devote either the time or the resources necessary to make sure we are prepared and to make sure that we have a resilient community.
1: I kind of feel the same way. I, I feel as, as a person, is as an emergency manager, I can't directly affect the climate change or reversal of so forth. I guess I just read this thing the other day that there's, I think we have like 13 years left before we were beyond repair, something along those lines. But at least I could do is prepare my jurisdiction for for the effects of that, especially coastal communities and, and things like this. Is that Do you think that's the appropriate take? Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here. So please reach out to them. Tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. I kind of feel the same way. I I feel as, as a person is, as an emergency manager, I can't directly affect the climate change or reversal of so forth. I guess I just read this thing the other day that there's, I think we have like 13 years left before we were beyond repair, something along those lines. But at least I could do is prepare my jurisdiction for, for the effects of that, especially coastal communities and and things like this, is that do you think that's the appropriate take? Or I, I we
0: do. More? Yeah. In fact, I think I think you need to make it local. We all need to make climate change local. I mean, the impacts are going to be different in California than they are in North Carolina. They're going to be different in Wisconsin. They're going to be different in different parts of the country and the world. Uh, some places will be hotter. Some will be colder. Some will be wetter. Some will be drier. And I think. Making it local also works with the population you serve. They they're there. They're experiencing drought or wildfires. Right. Or or here we are experiencing tropical tropical storms. And these events, when they happen, can be mined by the emergency manager to help to help uh, get the message out about okay, our risks and vulnerabilities are changing. And if you're factoring climate into that assessment of risk and vulnerability. Uh, and, and applying it to the local level, you're doing, you're doing absolutely everything you need to do. Uh, and, 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 it, and what's happening in our national politics, as you know, is often at odds with what is happening in, in our local politics. For example, while the national government's backing off of trying to address climate change under the current administration, the state of California has made tremendous progress in trying to address some of these issues. And we can take a look around the country and see different states and even different cities and localities uh, are taking concrete steps to, uh, within their jurisdiction, to address the the issue of climate change, even if they're not mentioning it by name.
1: Right. Well, a good example of California, I think it's by 2020, all new homes have to have solar panels built on their roofs. You know and, and things like right. that right. i i I kind of have this debate that we talk and, and i I guess I've sit on the fence on this, and so we 're discussing the ideals and the idea of the electric cars right and mm-hmm. so the idea is you know you get this car, it has a bunch of batteries, and it 's electric, but yet you 're still using carbon to to charge. <laughs> that car Mm -hmm. up and and they also have the reduced. You also have the batteries that at some point have to be recycled or done something with, with the, the acids and the leads and stuff that are in there. But the ideal of the electric car is that we're going to create something that is going to be beneficial for society regarding carbon emissions um, and, and the reduction of the, of use of fossil fuels. How can we get those the idea of the car and the ideal of the car combined together to where it's actually reducing that carbon footprint because I don't see it one hundred percent yet or will it ever be one hundred percent
0: well i you know I honestly don't know if it'll ever be hundred percent uh but I do know um reducing the carbon footprint is itself the that phrase is somewhat is somewhat uh misleading. We need to do more than reduce it, okay? Think of the, a bathtub, okay? And, and think of that bathtub being full of water, the water spigot is wide open, and the bathtub is overflowing, right? Mm-hmm. Think of that as uh, being analogous to the earth being overloaded with carbon and spilling over the side. Uh, reducing the flow, reducing the emission of water or carbon doesn't stop the problem because it's The tub is still full and overflowing, right?
1: Right.
0: So so either you have to figure out how to remove water from the tub or carbon from the air faster than we're putting it in, or you have to turn the the faucet off. And increasingly, it is beginning to look, when you take a look at the the, uh, carbon that's already been accumulated in the atmosphere, that the only... uh, the only step that will ultimately be successful is turning the carbon faucet off. And of course, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Right. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing to reduce the flow of carbon or to reduce the amount we're putting into the air. It's a good thing. And for those who say, well, you know, uh, why should we do that? Other countries are emitting more. I would point out two things. One uh, on a per capita basis, Americans emit more carbon than anybody else. And secondly, I would point out that whether you emit or slow the level of emission, what you do in one part of the planet affects the whole planet. So it does make a positive or negative difference uh, depending on what you do. Um, this is a, glo- a global situation. And, uh, uh, but, you know, again, I think. Uh, uh, we are, we are thinking of it this way. We are in taking baby steps. We're in a state of infancy right now in addressing climate change. I mean, we knew as early as 1988 that anthropogenic or human caused climate change was a reality in June of 1988, James Hansen and other climate scientists testified before the United States Senate and said that the science is now conclusive. This is happening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Uh, And that's, what, three decades ago. And in that three decades' time, what we have done is to have a political food fight, okay, about whether we think it's happening or not. And we've had a lot of money getting spent uh, by fossil fuel companies to convince us it's not happening. But in terms of what we've done, we've taken baby steps, very small baby steps. I suspect as time goes by, if we get more serious about this, give it more thought, we will be both more aggressive in terms of what we do, but we will also discover better options than what we're looking at right now. Whether those options come through technology or through other uh, policy options remains to be seen. but it, we're just beginning to address this problem. We're taking baby steps, and we need to grow up and, and uh, mature and, and and become more aggressive about about addressing the issue.
1: Can we as emergency managers lead the way, using the concepts of planning and sustainability to help reduce the issues with climate change?
0: Of course, of course, particularly if you are are able to factor in the data from climate science that helps you define the risk and vulnerabilities in your community. Yeah, absolutely. Planning is, you know, so critically important. And as you know, to do anything close to adequate planning, you need a lot of data and information. You can't, you can't just roll the dice. You can't just uh, go on a gut-level feeling, right? You have to be driven by evidence. Right. And, if you, and uh, so, yeah, I think doing the job at the local level as well as you can. And, and, if, and if, you're, if you're actually factoring in uh, – if you take a look at my book on the climate change – book that came out in 2016, I go through each section of the country and talk about the different risks that they're going to face. And if each community were focusing on those things that are going to be happening in their community uh, and doing their level best uh, to, to mitigate, to reduce the impact of some of these events, or even, you know, go beyond uh, uh, that address some of the causes. Uh, a lot of positive things will happen, and it does have to happen at the local level. We have to make this a local concern, and who better to have to be a part of that discussion than emergency managers, whose professional expertise is a natural here. I mean, they are they are the people who assess risk and vulnerability. They are the people who think about mitigation. They are the people who try to communicate with the whole community and with the decision makers. They're in a very important and, I think, potentially influential position.
1: I agree. I agree with you a lot because, number one, we're out in the community listening to their concerns, and I think that we can bring those back to our policymakers and have them really listen to us when we have their ear, that's for sure
0: and also as as the profession becomes more stable and has a solid reputation that enhances your ability to do that uh you know when you go to the to the doctor let's say you go to a specialist a heart specialist and you, you trust that professional don't you and and, and you probably wouldn't uh, talk to your uh, auto mechanic and see what he thought about your heart i mean you so uh, and, and emergency managers need to have that same level of respect and cultivate that same level of professionalism. And I think it's beginning to happen and hopefully it will continue to happen so that when, when they do convey what they know, whether to the public or the decision maker, it is regarded as, as a really solid professional input.
1: If somebody is looking to get a hold of, of you and your, your books, how could they do so?
0: Well, all three of my books are available on Amazon. Uh, they can also be ordered directly from the publisher. Uh, Prager is the publisher of two of the, my books uh, the science book and the climate change book. But if you go online and take a look at Amazon, you'll see them all there. And uh, like I say, the new book, uh, When Science and Politics Collide, is in fact now available on Amazon. For a reduced price, you can get it for about half price. Yeah, and you, if you know anything about academic books, they usually cost more than <laughs> than <laughs> some of the popular books. Uh, uh, I think the, the the price right now on Amazon is very reasonable with the half price. So
1: yeah, I do too. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's twenty nine seventy seven um, on Amazon, and we'll have the link to uh, to your books and to and to your, uh, to your page here uh, on our show notes. So if you're driving down the road, don't worry about it. Uh, check it out a little bit later. Click on the show note, and we'll be able to get you a bit to there. So, okay, so outside of your books, which I think are, are great, what book books or publication do you recommend that an emergency manager should have on their bookshelf?
0: Aside from mine, that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one that I've read recently, and, it, it, and I really – think it's important was The Great Influenza by John M. Berry. Having written about uh, the influenza pandemics in the science book, um, and and having looked at some of the professional assessments that suggest we are not prepared as a nation for for a major national health emergency, uh, that book was interesting. the great influence is the story of the 1918 Spanish flu, uh, a flu that killed more people in the United States than did all of World War II, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the, probably the worst flu pandemic uh, we have had uh, maybe ever. But frightening enough, and you may recall about a decade ago, we had some concerns about a, a bird flu, the H5N1 strain. Right, and, and since that time, we've had other newer strains coming out that we've been concerned about. Most of the experts will tell you that we are overdue for another major flu pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if something like that were to happen today, it could actually be worse than it was in 1918, because it would travel much quicker around the world right. with air flight and all the rest. And and one of the things we've learned just studying uh, the response to the Ebola outbreak in 19 19- 14, thereabouts, and, and later the Zika outbreak, not only in the United States, but worldwide, we are not prepared to respond efficiently and qu- and quickly enough. If these were major, uh, had been major uh, pandemic situations, uh, there would have been uh, a tremendous catastrophe simply because we weren't prepared to respond efficiently. Part of the problem there, and that goes back to the one of the dynamics in the science book, the panic dynamic. We don't even though the science is good, okay, public health uh, officials will tell you, the science is good. The scientists can help us understand uh, the potential the potential for disease outbreak. They can, they can help you take a look into the future and see what's coming, but we don't respond until the spam hits the fan,
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: that, and that is often too late. Uh, we, uh, public policymakers tend to be reactive rather than proactive as we know in the field of emergency management um, is you know being proactive take hazard mitigation being proactive spending a dollar there will save me six dollars in recovery right so so but but that's not the way most people think it's certainly not the way politicians think right so they, they tend to be reactive but being reactive to a health uh, an international or global health crisis would be to to be a little bit too slow. It would it would create unnecessary uh, um, suffering and and death. So that's why that book uh, resonated with me, The Great Influenza, because, because uh, I would written about it in my book when science and politics collide. I've seen the contemporary uh, assessments that su- suggest we're not ready. Not only aren't we ready. Uh, but, uh, you know, when it does, when well, we do have something happen, I think back to the Ebola situation, um, it really wasn't a big threat to the United States. Was it? No, no. Uh, and, but th- if you recall, there was a little bit of panic in some places about it. Um, now, and we didn't, and, and the okay. world didn't really begin to respond in a timely manner. By the time the United States got around to addressing Ebola, there were already six, uh, excuse me, already about uh, six thousand, seven thousand deaths from it in West Africa, and 25, 30,000 cases of it. Of course, what really made us get serious was what, when eight people came to the United States with Ebola? Right. <laughs> eight people. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and, and the news was full of Ebola, and people were beginning to panic unnecessarily. The health experts, the scientists, they could, they could tell us, look, your chances of, of catching Ebola from a traveler are next to zero. It's very, very slight chance. And if you do, our capacity to treat it is much greater than West Africa. You should be okay. No, instead, people did get a little bit uh, concerned. I remember two nurses who treated one of these patients came down with it also, and that, mm-hmm. that got big coverage. And lo and behold, as always happens in situations like this, sometimes uninformed people get on the internet or on Twitter and make matters a little bit worse. There was a private citizen at the time; I think his name was Donald J. Trump. got got on Got on Twitter. Something Apparently, apparently the guy likes Twitter. And uh, and during the Ebola crisis, said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the quote in front of me, but it is in my book. He said. Uh, he said, "Well, the people who go to faraway places to help out are, are great, but they should be banned from coming back to the United States because they're going to infect us all with Ebola." Right. Uh, even and even after even after the the public health experts were telling us the risk is very very low, he comes out with another tweet that says, uh, the, "The your chances of uh, catching Ebola are much greater than the CDC or the government is telling you," and so. You know, that's the last thing you need in the middle of a public health crisis. Right. Is, is somebody on social media who's uninformed, who is, is simply not uh, connected to the facts, spreading all sorts of, of misinformation that will, will rile people up. So that's just one small concern that I have about a possible public health emergency. Uh, my greater concern is our slowness to act. Um, I don't know if you're aware of it. But if there were a flu pandemic, we wouldn't have a vaccine available immediately. Right. I know. Th- that pandemic would, uh, would be a mutating thing and it you know, would take a while to get that vaccine out there. Uh, I think our capacity, because the government is kind of plugged into that, is, is a little bit better there. But, but uh, there's always going to be that period of delay. And what do you do in that period? We have, our, our planning is not, uh, is not complete here. Our planning is incomplete. Our capacity to act efficiently and quickly is in doubt. And, uh, and then, of course, there is the, the political fight. Well, should we allocate money for this or no? You're going to have a political fight about that. That will slow the response down more and cause more catastrophes in a genuine uh, public health emergency. So I'm scared to death of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. Actually, you know, I mean, I know that when we're looking at the uh, flu outbreak, they have to find out what the strain is and go back, and then they have to produce the uh, uh, the the the, uh, the shot for it, right? Because they have to find right. It. Yeah. So uh, that's crazy. Well, before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to say directly to the emergency manager?
0: Well, of course, uh, I'm an academic. Okay, uh, I'm a political scientist by training who studies uh, emergency management from uh, a 30,000 foot level, okay? Uh, and I have great respect for those who are on ground level doing the work. But one of the things that I've discovered is that uh, when when two people like us get together, the guy working on the ground and the, the people looking at it from 30,000 feet, we often we often collaborate in ways that are very constructive and very good, so... And that's one of the things I've always respected about emergency management. Uh, many of the people in the field uh, want that kind of relationship. They subscribe to some of the journals that we publish in. They they are constantly looking to upgrade their knowledge. And I think that is one of the most attractive features, in fact, about the field is, is the hunger and the thirst people have for continuing to expand their knowledge. So I uh, hope that I uh, hope that you'll continue to do that in this field. And I hope also that uh, that emergency managers working at the local level realize uh, that, that in terms not just of their community, but really in terms of our national interests, what they do is so vitally important and uh, don't ever feel it doesn't make a difference.
1: Well, sir, I appreciate your time this morning. I know you got you to gotta get going, but uh, I'd love to have you back on sometime.
0: I'd love to do it. Thanks a lot.